Hey, and welcome to the show today. You're listening to SinSensor.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. And we have another really great show for you today. This podcast is made by SinSensor.com, the leading relationship institute for relationship skills and courses based on science made practical. To get the one-hour free webinar that will give you the key skills to get a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, just go to SinSensor.com and sign up. The link is in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and leave a review. It really helps me keep the positive energy going to make more podcasts. So welcome to the podcast. Today we have Elizabeth on the show and I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about something that is new for me too, which is system theory and also how that impacts relationships. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today, Elizabeth. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, my pleasure. It's going to be fun and educational. I was wondering, just because a lot of the listeners out there might not know who you are, would you be able to just tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you're working with at the moment? Of course, of course. I am first and foremost a social worker, and I have postgraduate training in couples, family, and sex therapy in a program where systems theory is the primary psychological school. So that informs everything that I have experienced and worked on since finishing my training. I work in Washington, DC. I see mostly couples and individuals um, in an age range of about 21 to 60 years old. I'm fortunate because I love what I do. I wish most of it right now were not virtual, but of course it has to be to be safe. Um, and so this is a time where I find myself feeling especially grateful to love what I do and to be able to keep doing it. Um, I also, uh, several years ago, wrote a book that is written for adults whose parents divorced when they were growing up. It's called Overcoming Your Parents' Divorce. And I enjoy uh, having conversations like this one and being an active media contributor on many different platforms. Am I answering your question, Thomas? You definitely are. Thank you so much for that, Elizabeth. And actually, I'm particularly excited about talking to you today because most often when I have guests on, I already know a lot about, you know, what it is they're going to be talking about because it's theory that I normally know a lot about myself today I feel like a newbie so I'm going to be learning together with the audience which is very exciting for me and I think we just spoke a little bit before about attachment theory and you said that system theory is kind of like a, a cousin to that but I think both me and probably a lot of the listeners out there are sitting thinking what is system theory in the first place so could you maybe just explain that to us so we kind of have an idea what that is I can, and I could explain it all day long. And in fact, when I work with individuals and with couples in therapy, I have a full session that is dedicated to teaching them about what systems theory is. So part of what I wonder is, do you want the long, medium, short version <laughs> of the explanation? Uh, I think maybe let so us, yeah, if it's a whole day one, we have about an hour. So I think we'd probably, <laughs> if we could do, do a 10 minute version or something, that would be great. Maybe that is that I the short I version? I think I can do that. Okay. And just jump in with questions. Oh, perfect. Systems theory drew from the biological perspective, from science 
because there is a systemic scientific theory that proposed you can't understand a tree if you don't understand air and you don't understand soil and you don't understand the larger interconnected ecosystem. So that's where systems theory gets its name from the biological sciences. It was developed in the late 60s. Uh, some pioneers of the theory were Salvador Mnuchin and Murray Bowen. And it developed at a time where psychotherapy was still a very new field. Of course, relatively, it's still a new field, but in the late 60s, it was very new. And what therapists were discovering is that while it was useful with adults, it was not useful with children. What a therapist and a child could do together in a room uh, did not show the same promise, which psychologically makes sense if you step back and think, of course, a child does not have the developmental hardware to carry over what they would do in a therapy session and hold on to it within their family unit. So clinicians started bringing whoever was in the waiting room into the room, into the therapy, uh, focused on the supportive caregiver of the child, whether that's mom, mom and dad, mom and grandmom. And by working with the unit, that is where they were most able to help a child. So the tagline for systems theory could be what they tell you on an airline, that in order to uh, be safe in an emergency, put your own oxygen on first and then help the child and give them the oxygen. So moving into what the theory suggests, it's the idea that we as an individual cannot be understood deeply and fully unless understood in the context of our relationships. So if you look at a family and you have mom, dad, and some kids, systems theory would say that they were a family system that could not be fully helped or understood without looking at all of the other systems that come into play. For example, the children's school, each parent's family of origin, uh, the friends that the couple share as a couple, the friend units that mom has separately as a mom, the friend unit that dad has separately as a dad, the children's friends, any sports that they're involved in, all of these you can think of as bubbles that overlap the bubble of the family. And from a psychological perspective, what they all have in common is a conscious and unconscious desire for homeostasis, meaning that every system is going to resist change, even change for the better, even healthy change, the system will resist it. But what systems theory also proposes is that if only one member of a unit insists on being an agent for change, they'll face resistance, they'll face resistance, they'll face resistance, but eventually, the system will acclimate to the change and settle into a new normal. And of course, everything is always changing. Nature is always changing. The world is always changing. So that the therapy is focused on these different spheres of influence 
and where and how we consciously and unconsciously resist change. Mm-hmm. So that systems theory, there's one concept related to systems theory that I'd like to get into at some point, but that I would say is the briefest explanation I can give of the theory. I really like that overview. Thank you. And that makes a lot more sense. And actually, it just made me think about um, this book. And he's also done a TED talk called Sebastian Younger. He wrote a book called Tribal, where he talks mm. about the importance of social healing and how we heal in connection with others, right? And he said people who had PTSD took much, much longer to recover if they came home to a more isolated society because they yes. weren't looked at in an integrated system. And I actually spoke to one of my friends who is a psychologist in Denmark and treats soldiers who came home from Afghanistan with PTSD. And I proposed exactly this to him. I said, why don't you integrate the family, the partner, if there's you know all these people into the healing Because if they don't understand what's going on, then the dynamic will keep being confused and will be reinforced in a negative way. So they have to be integrated. Like you said, we need to look at the whole system. And it also reminded me of this idea of why it's so important that we give our partner a map of ourselves. We need a map of each other because you're right. It's not just this person. It's also the understanding of their history, their expectations they come with based on how they're brought up. You know, their part partners that have influenced them as well and having a full understanding. Um, So it makes so much sense. And the interesting thing, when you explained it, I thought this sounds very similar, like you said. It's just that I guess I use different terminology so it's super interesting what i would love to hear more about is how we can then kind of take this because this was a very overview of theory right how could we take system theory and how does that relate to relationships um and how can people in practical ways then start using system theory well what i'd like to do in answering that question is really briefly explain a concept that's a little bit complex, but central to systems theory. And then I can explain how I teach that concept to therapy clients and use it to help them apply it, to have more intimate relationships, to feel more psychologically grounded and to have a more satisfying, fulfilling life. Um, Is it okay if I try and briefly explain that? I would love that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So as this way of working within the system was taking off and showing such promise, this clinician, Murray Bowen, developed a concept that's called differentiation that then became the centerpiece of systems theory. And The simplest and very incomplete definition for what systems theory is, and and I haven't read this anywhere, but I use this definition to help my therapy clients conceptualize it. The simplest definition is emotional maturity. So what differentiation is proposing is that we as adults on a path of an adult life have this central psychological goal of becoming ever more differentiated, of becoming ever more emotionally mature. What does that mean? It means more and more able to balance separateness and togetherness, to be able to be intimate with an individual and with various individuals and simultaneously feel truly grounded in one's separate self. 
Uh, and it's really a scale and a spectrum with the idea that none of us ever completes this journey. We just continue to try to grow. So undifferentiated individuals don't look, all look alike and we all struggle with aspects of being less differentiated. In one extreme, what it looks like is a tendency to cling to others in a reactive way and therefore define the self in terms of the other. This is like a person who, if you ask them what they're doing, they tell you what their girlfriend is doing. At the other extreme, which according to differentiation is the flip side of the very same psychological coin, at the other extreme is an impulse to cut off or detach from others in a reactive way. In other words, to define oneself in terms of opposition to others. So this can look like hyper-controlling behavior or like a person who wants to keep dating someone but also wants to keep reminding them that they don't want a relationship. So I'm, I'm speaking in extremes. And of course, an individual who tends to cling to others in a reactive way, we've, we've heard of this in many ways. You hear about a codependent personality. You hear about someone who clings. You um, can find so many examples of people who are too codependent in various schools of psychology. But what's different in systems theory is that systems theory is suggesting that whether we cling or whether we cut off and detach, they're psychologically the same because they're too driven by an overreaction to the other person and less grounded in the self. Um, so it's a bit of a complex theory. Do you think I'm explaining it in a way that is yeah, understandable? Yeah, and I think also I understand a bit now why you said it also related or was a question of attachment theory. And I think the listeners, if they listen to previous episode, have heard a bit about attachment theory. So even, I guess, to relate it to that, to some extent, it's not precisely what's being described, but I can see the relation to anxious attachment and avoidant attachment a bit exactly. in the descriptions that you're doing uh, or that you're giving us here, which is great because that might give people a an understanding yes, of like taking you, the words right out of my mouth exactly yeah and like you exactly. said of course you did and what i liked about what you said before about system theory and seeing it in an integrated system is i found that a lot of people would start categorizing people saying you are this attachment but what's interesting is that because it's a system like you said and and when we are together as a couple it is an integrated system literally into wiring nervous systems it also means that that we do we actually adapt and it means that you can see a person be codependent in one relationship but it doesn't mean that they will necessarily be the same in another relationship right, right? they may be more likely to cut off and detach in another relationship mm. and it's all a part of the same underlying challenge and journey. And so then, of course, understandably, what, you know, when, when presenting this to a couple or to an individual, uh, people have all kinds of insights about themselves. And they'll say, I relate to this part, I relate to that part, this sounds like me, this doesn't sound like me. And then the next question is, well, what do I do about that? How do I become more differentiated? How do I work on this? Um, and I think it's also important to 
consider that in the lens of this theory, it's also the idea that the more differentiated one is, the less anxiety they tend to experience. The more grounded we are in ourself and able to balance intimacy and relationships and separateness, the less anxious we feel. And part of how, in my experience, people can grow to become more differentiated is to become more curious about their partners is one part. And also to work on how they communicate. Because I really believe that by working on communication, it's a gateway to change and to emotional maturity. Just trying to work on saying certain complicated things in a more differentiated way to use the language of this theory can be transformational for people as they practice it. So how would that look if, if, because that's interesting, that would be my next question, how some of this theory actually in, in practical terms relate to intimacy and communication. How, how would that then work if somebody were trying to use these tools in their communication or, or even or in other ways for, to improve their intimacy? Well, one example that might be interesting or even relatable would be a recent conversation I had with a couple uh, where they had had a really tense, difficult evening and argument. What happened was they went out um, in D.C. for the first time in a long time, as many of us are venturing to do. And the place that they wanted to go to sit outside, where they felt most safe, they drove to. And both driving to and from the restaurant, the outdoor restaurant, uh, they got in a, a terrible fight about the way that he was driving. And it ruined the evening and it it became uh, a real disconnect between them where he felt so controlled while he was trying to do his best and she felt scared. She She felt like he wasn't driving safely enough and she was in the passenger side and she she kept thinking that he was going to hit people who were on bikes that he wasn't seeing. And as they worked to communicate about it in a deeper way, they were able to go underneath those impulses to critique the other person and, and really criticize all the things that the other person was doing wrong, which were happening. They, they, they both, uh, could be completely on target in their criticisms of the other. But by going underneath it and speaking more deeply in a more differentiated way, she was able to look at what was really going on and she was able to instead say, you know what? I hadn't been in the passenger seat of a car since March. So part of what was happening was I just wasn't used to it. But on a more deeper level, I don't think I have shared with you how scared I am to go outside. I'm terrified. And if I'm really honest with myself, what I realize when I think about how scared I am to go out, I realize that if I weren't in this marriage with you, I don't think I'd be going out at all. 
So even though I realized I wasn't at my best and it probably wasn't pleasant to drive with me, if, if I weren't with you, I wouldn't go out at all and that would be terrible. So I feel badly about how I acted in the car. I was truly scared. And I also do want to acknowledge and thank you for helping me get out the door. In turn, what he said was, I think I also need to be really honest with you about something I've been thinking about that I haven't been sharing, which is I'm so extroverted. I'm so social. And if it weren't for you, I think I would have been taking all kinds of risks all along. I, I think I would resist wearing masks. I think I would be handling all of this so differently. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm not. And I really feel like you've helped me with that. Uh, so they're talking about the same tension. They're just going underneath it and exploring it on a deeper level where therefore the very things that they're fighting about can be points of curiosity, intimacy, and uh, growth, emotional growth for both of them. Is, is that a useful example in this? I think it is. And kind of what I hear as well, like some of the skill sets I just noticed in what you're describing, which is amazing how they manage to, to you know, yeah, engage in that way, I feel. And what's important, I think, for us to remember what you describe here is essentially that the wife or partner, she was able to self-regulate. And I think what's so important mm -hmm. is we need to be, know ways that we can regulate our own notice and regulate when we know we start getting triggered, right? Because if we are not regulated, we are going to trigger our partner um, and we can't help co-regulate them if we are not. You know, that's I. this is what I always used to say with parents, with their children when they want to teach them social and emotional learning is you will not do the right thing with your kids if you're really stressed and if you're really triggered. So the first thing you need to do before teaching your kids anything is make sure you regulate yourself, even if that means taking a few minutes just to yourself. Regulate, and this is the same in a, in a couple's partnership, and I guess that's what they did. And then she shared in a vulnerable way, right? Which took it away from, exactly. from the blame, the attack, which obviously she could only do because she self-regulated in the first place. And exactly. if I understand it right, the way I understand that system theory then comes in here, when you say connect uh, or communicate on a deeper level, it's that she could see the context of what was going on. Is that right? Is yeah. that kind of how system theory then applies? Exactly. She was able to go underneath what was really happening. And in doing so, she could become less reactive. So in some ways, we're using different languages to describe the very same experience. Yeah, which is super um, interesting. <laughs> yes, it's, it is all about how do you become curious in the face of triggers rather than reactive? And what, what systems theory also insists, which is part of looking at how we all resist change, even when we don't know we're resisting it, is that in a stressful situation, that's when we're most likely to revert to old patterns and have stress and anxiety completely grab us and take over. But that's also a time of opportunity for the greatest emotional growth. It's a time to dig in really deep and ask oneself what's really going on and how can I 
tune into that so that I'm less reactive to these triggers. And then the next step of that, which is the same, but I want to describe is on the one hand, it's the idea that stressful situations are an opportunity for emotional growth. But at the same time, it's also the challenge that, of course, we're all going to revert. It's just a part of human nature. Everybody has a bad day, especially right now with what's happening in the world. So it's this idea that when you do revert, don't decide that that means nothing's ever going to change, the other person's never going to change, and it's not worth it. Instead, dig in deeper, own your part of the equation, apologize for whatever role you had in what didn't go well, even if you're absolutely convinced that the other person is 90% to blame. Just own your part and decide to, to just try harder the next time. Mm, this is really interesting also because it just reminds me of of when I had an ex-partner that had borderline personality disorder. And actually, one of the things her mind was not able to do was apply system theories. She was not able to see the overall context and integrated system because all that felt real to her was the emotion she felt in the moment. And this yes. is why often their relationships become very toxic, right? Because they're simply not mm -hmm. able to apply that skill you're describing now, which is being able to see all the integrated parts of what's happening And and that is not just about what we're feeling in this moment. And I guess that's what that couple you described it so well. They were able to self-regulate and then see the context rather than just the, be overloaded and overwhelmed by the emotion. Yes. Yeah, so the, the very thing that was so disappointing to them, I mean, imagine they hadn't been on a date in months working from home in a small apartment. And then the very thing that was the point of tension could draw them closer once they dug in a little deeper to what was really going on and how much more was really there um, that was an opportunity for growth for both of them in noticing that, in exploring it, in being curious about it and putting words to it. And what are ways that people can start practicing this if they have a tendency to just you know, run, a, run run along with their triggers, which I guess a lot of people do. They they just believe their emotions and run with that. So if they feel angry, they will snap at their partner. What are ways that people can can start practicing getting out of that pattern and instead, you know, try, try and engage with this way you're describing where they see the overall system? Well, Thomas, you're using the perfect word, which is practice. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to, in any of these explanations... Uh, imply that any of this is easy, it's a journey, and it is practice. Um, with anything that we develop, it takes practice, right? I mean, even think about one of the ways I try to describe the process of psychological change to clients is to remind them what it was like when they learned to drive a car. Um, because if If you remember what that was like, there was a time when you had to learn uh, to which is the gas, which is the brake, where are you going, turn on the turn single signal, how fast are you going, look in the rear view mirror, stay in your lane. All of these skills that had to be learned, that had to be practiced. And then what happens once a person knows how to drive, 
is that they get in a car and they apply all of those skills, but they don't realize that they're doing it. They're still doing it and they don't always do it perfectly. And and sometimes it, it doesn't go well, but once we know how to drive, usually it does. Uh, it takes practice to get to a point that something is internalized and therefore more intuitive. So the simplest way to practice this is to talk about oneself and, and have a willingness to be curious in the face of tension rather than blaming. It's not easy. The, the, the simplest way to break it down is to say I and don't say you. Um, you know, I learned so many strategies when I was doing postgraduate training. And very quickly, a lot of people would say that they just felt fake, that they didn't resonate. Nevertheless, the one thing that people tend to respond to and find effective once they get used to it is I statements because it's accessing oneself underneath the impulse to blame. And it can be done with any conversation and it forces a person to own their part of an equation. And by doing so, that's an invitation to the other person to be their best self rather than go down a rabbit hole of reactivity and blame and disconnection and disengagement and disappointment. So, you know, one of the examples that is most basic in this is a, a couple comes into therapy and they're asked why they're there. And one half of the couple says, I know why I'm here. I am here because it sucks to be married to you. You're so cold, you're so distant. I know you can't even tell me the last time you reached out to hold my hand, let alone any real physical affection, and I'm not going to live like that anymore. That's one couple. The next couple is asked the same question, and the answer is, well, if I'm very honest with myself, I am struggling with something that I've always struggled with in our relationship, and it's something I've always observed, which is, I am someone who craves physical affection. And if I'm really honest, I've always noticed that I've craved it more than you. And I think I was naive because I think I thought that if we got married and had a family, that tension would work itself out. And instead, now I'm struggling with it more than I ever was before. And I want to figure out a way to meet my needs, but I also want to respect where you're coming from. So. In this framework that we're talking about, systems theory would suggest that if you follow these two couples around, there could be even more physical affection happening with that first couple. It is possible. But the content of the problem doesn't matter because of the process of the communication. That first couple has so much work to do just by evidence by the way the first person communicated the problem, whereas the second couple is already doing the work in their ability to describe the same problem, but by owning their part in it. So it's the difference between saying you never hug me versus I want a hug. 
Yeah, so it's it's really this process require to basically start self-reflecting. And I guess that's a key skill to, to have flourishing relationship, to have self-awareness, right? Because otherwise you can't even engage in this process. And what you described, uh, I really like that example of replacing, of course, the attack and blame with, again, shared mm-hmm. vulnerability. And like you said, focus on I statements, focused on what it is that you need, you know, and focus on your experience rather than what the actions the other person have done or that you feel they haven't done. And I think you're right. It's so important because instead of the attack will always trigger the adrenaline response, which means they can't hear us, right? While the vulnerability instead actually triggers the empathy in our brain, which makes it possible to listen and hear and feel compassion. And I also really... Yeah, and I really liked your point in the beginning where you said it's a skill we practice because I feel often when people get new knowledge, they can even get hard on each other and say, oh, you didn't do like the therapist <laughs> said, right? <laughs> and and I really I just want to remind people to have some self-compassion and compassion for their partner because like you said, we will get it wrong tons of times as we learn a new skill. And as we get good at it, we will still sometimes get it wrong. You know, even I, you know, I work with relationships, I know you do, but I'm sure you know, you sometimes make mistakes in relationship and so do I. You know, there's times where I simply get too stressed and where I forget to engage with the tools that I know. So I think it's really good to have that self-compassion because if we start being critical of ourselves, our partner for not doing it right, then that just create even more stress and just exactly. remind ourselves that it's... okay. part it's, of being human. Yeah, and it's okay to get it wrong. Let's just remind ourselves again that, okay, we could do it maybe in a better way and then we try and practice again and we go and that's part of the self-reflection, right? Exactly, exactly, because it is... Um, if, if you're in a place of pain in a relationship and working on it and there's a stressful situation and somebody or usually both people get it wrong, it's really easy to decide that it's never going to change and it's not worth it. Uh, and that's the very moment where the deepest growth can happen to just dig in a little deeper and go for the repair. Own what you wish you had said differently. Ask for a repair. And once again, the the really disappointing part of, well, gosh, I've been working so hard on this and I thought I really learned it and got it right and look look at what happened even that can be an opportunity for more intimacy and for emotional growth. I love those points. It's beautiful. And also a wonderful framework to to just look at a relationship as a way to grow because I think often people give up and disengage because they have this Hollywood fantasy that it should all be easy and be in love. And if we don't have that in that feeling anymore automatically, then that means that it's not right when actually the mature love that develops after the honeymoon stage is exactly what you describe and requires that continuous process of seeing a relationship as a way to grow and learn and that sometimes we have strong affection and emotions and sometimes we have other emotions and when the other emotions come up it's a great way to look at what is going on why is this coming up why is that triggering me so much and actually we only get these opportunities in relationships when we are just on our own, then we don't get somebody who necessarily triggers us in that way because nobody can trigger us more than the people closest to us, right? Exactly. I mean, 
I still remember a professor in graduate school saying that uh, falling in love is a little bit like fishing in that you cast out the line and you catch this fish and you reel it in and you reel it in and you reel it in. But, the, but, but that what draws you to someone is typically the ways that they're different than you are because we don't want to be in love with ourselves. That would be so boring. So we're drawn to something far away that's so different. And we reel it in and we get closer, we get closer, we get closer. And then once there's intimacy, there can be this further reeling in of be more like me, be more like me, be more like me. Can't you just do it the way I do it? Be a little more like me. Do the dishes this way, (laughs) make the bed that way keep a house the way I would keep it. And we all just want to be loved for who we are. And that's what drew us to the person in the first place is the ways they're different. Almost always. Yeah. I think that's very, very true. And I guess often part of getting drawn to a person is also seeing characteristics that maybe we somehow wished we had that we see that they have that we then find really attractive. And like you said, then at some point we, we start trying to change each other rather than seeing actually, a, a flourishing relationship is partly the opposite is being able to give each other full acceptance and help each other flourish more become more of what we are and and the parts that it we goes, want to develop yes it goes back to the couple who went on their first night out after quarantine they're different they're very different people and they're so well suited for each other and it's when they could talk about who they really are and their differences that they got to appreciating what each other bring to the relationship and, and what a compliment they are to each other. That's beautiful. Because they're different. Yeah. And that's what makes them even stronger. They have different things to contribute. That's wonderful. I want to talk to you a bit about empathy as well. And I think maybe first, before we go into empathy is just, for people to kind of get an idea why is why is empathy even important in a relationship why does it even matter i don't know could you touch a bit on that and then we can talk more about it afterwards yes i mean imagine a relationship without empathy um i have felt concerned that we generally have a crisis of empathy right now. And perhaps that's a separate conversation in terms of how much time we spend looking at a screen rather than looking into other people's eyes. Uh, But I really think that curiosity is a kind of gateway to empathy and that empathy is a gateway to intimacy. I think the three interconnect with each other and each lead to the other more like a circle than a straight line. Uh, But that it's the ability to be empathetic uh, is deeply connected to the ability to be grounded enough in oneself to have curiosity about what's going on rather than defensiveness. And if we're curious, Uh, We can learn more about the other person. And if we're less reactive, we can take in the information and actually care about it. Yeah, I like Am I answering your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's wonderful. And I would also say, I think empathy is just 
the absolute cornerstone of of connection in general because if we do not have empathy then it's not really possible to feel connection with another human being so the more we develop that skill of empathy the more we are able to also deepen our connection because the more we are able to feel each other right and sense what's going on for the other party and therefore feel that we are more in a joint experience and that's not possible without empathy so yeah i think you're so right and even practicing and I've, yeah, I think you're right it's another podcast but it's an important point to bring up that we really spend way too little time with other people looking them in their eyes trying to understand their experience of the world and it, it's also why we get a more divisive world where people don't understand each other and I think even as a couple it's a beautiful thing to make it a regular thing to sit down even if you have kids I know there's not a lot of time for 15 minutes in the evening even of whatever is possible if people have kids i know a lot of people are exhausted at the end of the day whatever time they can take five minutes however long it is and just look in each other's eyes and try and be present and just share what is going on for them and and try and then feel the empathy for the other person that can be a wonderful practice to do yes and i think connected to it is a willingness to be uncomfortable If you think about the way we use screens, many times we use them to avoid discomfort. Uh, That the minute something's awkward, we look at our phone, whether it's a social setting or a relationship dynamic. We, We go away from where we are and we go into the screen. So uh, what helps with empathy is is in addition to looking in the person's eyes, setting aside the time, being deliberate, and also at times a willingness to just be uncomfortable and give in to that because it's okay. Having an awkward conversation um, is something that anybody can do if you talk about yourself and you consider the other person's ego. Uh, and I think today we, we use screens so that we can avoid feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, I like that. And also, because you're right, whether we look at the screen, I like your example, when we're out because we feel uncomfortable, whether it's us coming home stressed from work and putting on the TV, it's a way of disengaging, right? And, yes. And, and down-regulating our stress um, that takes us away from that empathy and connection. And also, it just reminded me a lot of what I work with in, in social emotional development is this idea that we categorize emotions as good or bad, which is actually very incorrect because emotions at its very core form are just messengers. They're essentially messengers that are telling us something is going on in our integrated yeah. system, you know, somatically, emotionally, and they're making us aware of something. So anger... For example, it's not a bad emotion. It could just make me aware that maybe your boss is violating you and and it's a way to to tell you you need to stand up and set your boundary. So, you know, exactly. emo- emotions are never bad. Like you said, even awkwardness is communicating something to us. And if we instead, like you said, can be with that, we realize they're actually not bad. And, and they only feel bad because we started, you know, associating them with that. So we feel uncomfortable about having that emotion in the first place because often we feel we can't cope with that emotion. And if we learn or teach our children that actually 
they can sit with these emotions and nothing happened. They can feel it in their body and maybe it's a little tension in the stomach, but that's all it is. It's not that bad, is it? And when no, they can anger become... Is, yeah, yeah, anger is such important energy. It's just a question of what we do with it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, do, do you have some other ideas of what couples could do to try and develop that empathy if, if they think, yeah, that's great, I want more empathy, or my husband is not that empathetic, what can we do to, to try and increase that? Is there things that couples can start doing together? Uh, well, one of the things that you and I emailed about that, that there is research on that is interesting and in some ways contradictory to everything I just said, um, there is research that watching films together about relationships and then talking about the films is something that reduces the divorce rate among young couples. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting, Thomas. I can send you the study. It's something that I share with all of the couples I work with, especially people who are newly married or doing premarital counseling because that's what the research is focused on. But it's this idea of not just watching the film. That's not enough. They have to look at each other and use these series of questions to talk about the film afterwards um, with the idea that getting a little bit of emotional distance from some of the challenges by together watching a film about it um, is an opportunity to help people prepare to work on themselves and become more empathetic to the other person's point of view. Um, so it's, it is a really interesting study. They took about 100, 130 couples, I believe, who were either engaged or newly married. They split them into four groups. Um, a fourth of the couples had five sessions of premarital counseling focused on social learning. Another fourth had premarital counseling focused on empathy. Another fourth did nothing. And the final fourth watched six films about marriage together and talked about them afterwards. And when they followed up with the couples three years later, a third of the couples who had no premarital intervention were divorced, 33%. With the couples who had done either form of premarital counseling, the divorce rate was only 11%. But what was really interesting is that the couples who did no premarital counseling, they just watched six films and talked about them, five or six films, they also had a divorce rate of 11%. So in that instance, watching films and discussing them was as effective as the couples therapy. And so it's just a little fun tool on the side to just watch films about marriage and talk about them. And it can be a way for people who want to work on their relationship uh, to just see what they discover. And I do think it can help develop and cultivate some empathy. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And also I think in general, in a lot of couples, there isn't that much open, vulnerable communication where people actually take time to sit down and talk about what is really going on, what's really challenging for them, how can they how can they support each other in growing in that world that they're in. And, you know, even in a sexual context, people, a lot of couples don't talk very much about their sex life 
they think it should just kind of automatically work out and they don't really talk about what are their desires, what are not working. And there's also lots of research that show that couples that have more communication about their sex life tend to have a better sex life, even though a lot of, of people course. say, yeah, exactly. But yet I hear a lot of couples say, oh, but it's not sexy if you have to talk about it. And actually, you know, research says something very different. It says that people who have more in-depth communication about it tend to enjoy sex more. Um so yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. I think that's wonderful. Do you have any last tips or ideas to give to the listeners before we 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 end the podcast? I would say that um where we began this conversation, one of the things that I hope I emphasized clearly enough is that all of this is a journey. It's not that that any of us wraps everything up in a per- perfect package with a beautiful bow and is finished and has the connection exactly the way they want it and the relationship exactly the way they want it. And it doesn't have to be perfect like that. It's it's a journey that keeps going. It's part of what I love about the concept of differentiation, that we never get there. We just keep learning and growing and digging deeper And that that in and of itself is not just a a path to intimacy. It's also a path to a strong and grounded sense of oneself. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for that. And I think my closing comment, which I really like, and it integrates, I think, everything you said about system theory, um, is, is the fact that we can start looking at relationship instead of something that is supposed to make us feel good, which I think is a romanticized idea about relationship, yes. right? It should make me feel good. And when I don't feel good, I leave, right? It's very much <laughs> this Hollywood ideal that we got. And instead, look at relationship as an opportunity to grow. Because like I said, we grow more. And I think that's also incorporate all these things you talked about, the self-reflection, seeing things in a system. It's really about, wow, here's a wonderful opportunity for me to grow more together with this person. Yes, yes, I I love that. I I completely agree. I really want to thank you, Elizabeth, for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge. It's been really wonderful to get this perspective, and also really interesting to see the different analogies of different theories and and how in many ways they're very similar, right? They just describe it in different ways. So it's been really fun. Exactly. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was so good to meet you and to speak with you and everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and come back for our new weekly podcast. Also, leave a review to keep the positive energy going that really keeps me motivated to make more of these podcasts. If you want to learn the key skills to a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, then head over to sensor.com and join the free one-hour webinar. The link is in the description. You'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down, how your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner and how to break that cycle, why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it, the simple three-step formula to lasting love. So thank you for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you next week for another podcast.